Welcome back. You're listening to Jason Lee Willis's Examining Christmas. Today's episode, we'll discuss the Magi, the Three Kings, the Wise Men, who they were, and why they came. Episode 11, Gifts of the Wise Men? What is a wise man? Before we look at the story of the wise men, or magi as they're often called, let's explore the word a bit. While wise men is an English euphemism of sorts, the term magi has all sorts of meaning to different cultures. The Latin word magi, or singular magus, eventually became the source for the word magician which has all sorts of occult connotations, thus wise men. For example, Simon the Magus from the Book of Acts was an evil Samaritan sorcerer more interested in buying power than reforming his corrupt ways. Wise men. The Greeks have the word magos, the Kurds have the word mangi, and the Persians use magus. Didn't they come from the east? Isn't Persia East? For all intents and purposes, Daniel was a magi in the court at Babylon, working side by side with the other pagan magi. Okay, so I'm cool with magi. Seems historical. I've seen research arguing that the word astrologers or astronomers could also be used because, you know, a star. And if you put together the Persia-Babylon connection that is so obvious in the use of East and match it up with what was going on in the Babylon area, then Magi, wise men, or even astro men, (laughs) seems to work. Yet in Persia, the definition is not very tight. Um, Magmen have four possible meanings and origins even in Persia. First, they could be a follower of Zoroaster. <laughs> if true, then they were indeed astro-men, who not only studied the stars, but were also a priestly order. They also had connections with magic through ancestry with the Chaldeans and Medes. Second, this meaning could have nothing to do with foreign religions, but could refer to an ethnic group. This younger Avestan word would thus refer to a tribe in western Iran, which would still be east of Judea. Third, Herodotus writes of Iranian expatriates living in Asia Minor. The old Greek historian explains that they are a class of Medes who left for greener pastures in Turkey. Herodotus does not really describe them as a religious order or an ethnic group. In fact, he paints a picture of refugees from Persia, Parthia, Bactria, Chorasmia, Area, is that really a place? Uh, Media, uh, Sakis, Samaria, Ethiopia, and Egypt. These people are 
kind of like the pilgrims who created a melting pot of cultures. Remember, the early Christian church does not thrive in the Holy Lands. It thrives in the seven churches, many of which were in, you guessed it, Asia Minor, home of the Magi 3.0. Magi 4.0 have a very unique meaning. These Magi were religious authorities within the Persian court. They were educators with a specific purpose, educating the emperor to be. In this light, how cool would the Magi 4.0 be if they were indeed teachers who offered their services to the king of all kings, baby Jesus? So let's keep an open mind involving our wise men, since there are a lot of possible historical meanings. Let's look at what Matthew wrote. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. How long after Jesus was born? Because it matters. If the wise men showed up within the first eight days, then Jesus was more likely than not in Bethlehem. If it was during days 9 through 39, then Jesus was more likely than not with Zacharias in a house at, more likely than not, Bethany. If they came exactly on day 40, then Jesus is in the same city, Jerusalem. What about Nazareth? First of all, the town of Nazareth would have certainly taken notice of this visit, right? Second, Joseph leaves immediately after the Magi visit and hides from Herod. If the Magi visited Joseph's house in Nazareth, then he would have had to go toward Herod instead of away from danger in order to get to Egypt. If Nazareth, why not go to Asia Minor? Other problems with Nazareth is the tight window involving Herod. Notice how the passage clearly states in the days of Herod the king. Herod dies in March of 4 BC. Quirinius, you know, the census guy, also arrives in Syria in 4 BC. While possible, a return trip to Nazareth, then a trip to Egypt prior to March is a little tight. I am not a fan of the Nazareth theory, nor am I a fan of a two-year-old Jesus. I'll explain soon. Now, pay close attention to what is actually written. Nowhere does it say the origins of the Magi. Yes, they came from the east. Yes, they saw the star when they were in the east. But those details do not 
completely sealed the deal. After all, why didn't they just say, We saw the star when we were in Parthia. Parthia was a major rival to Rome. Uh, Folks knew it well. There were highways leading right to the major cities. Unless, east meant someplace even farther than old Babylon, you know, present Iraq, Iran. What if it was a country Herod didn't know? Another thing to notice in the passage is that they did not claim to have followed it to Jerusalem. They claimed to have seen the star when they were in the east. That specific time and place, back when they were in the east, wherever that was, they received some sort of sign or message and headed to Jerusalem because that is where the king of the Jews is supposed to be found. No wandering, no charting, no crossing deserts. They got the message, departed, and now wanted to see the prophecy fulfilled. But, but the star led them. Did it? How is this even possible? If anything, they saw the star in the eastern sky, which would have led them east? But you can't follow a star because the earth is spinning on an axis. On any given time at night, a star, comet, or whatever would be seen in a different location because we are moving and it is fixed. Yes, it could help with some longitudinal, latitudinal navigating, but the line would have been indefinite. The Magi would have just gone round and round the Earth because the star never would have pinpointed a location on the globe. Plus, in a few verses, they're going to get all excited when they see the star again, meaning they hadn't seen it since they left. They knew where to go to, Jerusalem. So does this mean they were Jewish or believers? We're not told how much of a message this sign slash omen gave them, or even if it was some convoluted astronomical alignment. They would have needed to be well-versed in God lore for them to really care, right? They cared. We do know for certain of their purpose. They wanted to worship Jesus. That's pretty cool. It also would have been quite terrifying to King Herod. Matthew chapter 2 verse 3 reads, When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Why would Herod even bother to meet with some astromen? If he heard of their purpose, why not just send some of his guards, arrest them, torture them, and get all of the details he needed? Instead, Matthew writes that all Jerusalem was troubled. Do you know what this means? Herod 
may have had this meeting in public. Really? Why would you have a public meeting with some religious fanatics? Isn't this something to do behind closed doors where you could deal with it in all sorts of shady ways? Unless, and it doesn't say it here, these men were kings. Think about it. Herod had a choice Mediterranean kingdom supported by the Romans and had cleaned it up to be quite a vacation destination. Um, Don't picture modern Israel. Why would this prima donna bother with these guys unless they had an impressive entourage? Magi would be treated with disdain, but kings would have been treated as equals. Another way all Jerusalem would have been troubled is if two things were going on at once. Picture this. At the city gates, a large caravan of foreigners show up, declaring to the Jewish-slash-Roman guards that they wanted entrance to the city so they could see the king of the Jews. You mean Herod? Uh, sure, this way. Nope. Folks were troubled, weren't they? So this might mean they were a bit more specific about the Christ rather than just seeing the king. While this bit of chaos is happening at the gates, think of what could be happening at the temple. While the Pharisees are running to Herod to explain the meaning of the wise men's inquiry, Simeon and Anna are passing around baby Jesus. Those who see this announcement would also throw fuel on the fire surrounding the arrival of the wise men. Plus, wouldn't it be super cool if Jesus was actually in Jerusalem on day 40 when the wise men arrived? Their Holy Spirit radar was right. Jesus was in the city. But while they are meeting with Herod, Mary and Joseph meekly leave the city to go stay with Zacharias in a house in Bethany. The wise men also had a certain arrogance as well. Either in open court or in public forum, they literally asked the people of Jerusalem where they could find Jesus. Dangerous, stupid, naive. Unless they came in force under a foreign banner and didn't sweat Herod. I know it doesn't say anything about them being kings, not here at least, but the behaviors exhibited do not lead me to believe they are foreign pagan astronomers either. Matthew chapter 2 verse 4 reads, And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he, Herod, demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it was written by the prophet. And behold, 
Thou Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Uh, what? They knew? See, this is why I thought that the registration ploy was an obvious plot to kill off the prophecy. A. You've now got a list of names. B. If it works, you'll get all the Jews to show up dutifully. If we get the House of David registered, who needs to register the rest of the houses and families? Bethlehem was a trap because everybody knew this verse. Obviously, the wise men didn't know this detail or they would have gone to Bethlehem. But the Pharisees? The chief priests? Herod? They knew. Time out for just a second. Wasn't Zacharias a high-ranking guy? While the whole Annas Caiaphas coup might not have happened yet, we do know Zacharias was the unofficial high priest and respected member of any sort of think tank. If he was asked by Herod, how would he respond? The truth? Lie or cover up? This is why I don't think Zacharias was from Bethlehem and he'd been part of the circumcision on day eight. Unlike all the other scholars, he knows the Christ has already been born. Herod and the others seem to indicate that the Christ was still in the future. Zacharias knows Mary. Joseph and Jesus are not in Bethlehem. Whether he was in the silent minority or vocal majority in response to Herod. Long before an angel warned Joseph in a dream, Zacharias most likely knew Herod was scheming. For Bethlehem, the gig is up. The cat is out of the bag. Send in the troops and kill them all, and while we're at it, poison the wise men also. Wait, maybe we should do this a little more discreetly. <laughs> Villains. Herod, instead, devises a muhaha kind of plan. He knows the wise men are devout suckers, and if properly spied upon, they would do all the dirty work for him. So he uses them. Matthew 2, 7 reads, Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, Bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. <laughs> Herod is clever. Privately keeps his hands clean. Privately keeps the Jews calm and the Pharisees out of the loop. Herod realizes that the wise men 
left because of the star appearance and have been on the move, just not following the star, since that day. By finding out this detail, Herod thinks he can discern how old the Christ child is. Did one of the wise men say something? I think so. Later, Herod will have anyone under the age of two killed. Why? If the wise men told him they saw the star two years ago, Herod would only have to kill heirs or threats under two instead of causing massive bloodshed. Pause for a moment. If the implicit answer was two years, you know, just a guess, then why did it take these guys so long to get to Jerusalem? A camel can travel a hundred miles a day. Even if they cut across the Arabian desert, why? They would make a trip from ancient Babylon to Jerusalem in just two weeks. Two years? Something is a bit off. Either their journey was very complicated, or they came from a place much farther than Parthia. Unpause. Herod's also a big fat liar. <laughs> he had no intention of worshiping the child. But if the wise men are truly suckers, they would lead Herod's spies to the exact house. The noble citizens of Bethlehem might trust these guys instead of Herod's henchmen. Search. Although they had the town, no one knew where to find the baby. The wise men would not only do all the hard work, but would also lead the spies right to the baby. Suckers. The tone also shifted a bit. Herod sent them. They didn't just go. He sent them. Did they notice the change in tone from their host? Curious. Matthew chapter 2 verse 9 reads, When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Let's slow these two verses down a bit because quite a bit happened. First, I would like to establish that Bethlehem is just six miles from Jerusalem. If there were just three wise men, then they could have reached Bethlehem in an hour or two. This seems unlikely. If they had a huge entourage befitting foreign kings, likely, things would have taken a bit longer. They probably spent the night at Herod's palace. The next morning, the entire entourage would have to prepare and begin down the road to Bethlehem. Watched. Very watched. First, what peasant 
wouldn't try to sell goods to these guys along the way. So that certainly crowds the road. Second, Herod sent these guys so he could kill Jesus. This implies that he had spies. Hey, where's Caiaphas the monkey at? We need him. The wise men make a slow-moving, easy target to follow. And we need a second night. We need it for the departure from Jerusalem to make sense. And we need it for them to see any sort of star. So this was a very slow-moving caravan, wasn't it? Before anybody did any kneeling, the sun had to go down, which meant they took their time, which made sense if they suspected a trap. To give themselves more time, they undoubtedly camped on the edge of Bethlehem. If they were truly naive, they would have needed a base camp before they began searching door to door. If they were on to Herod, then they purposely avoided any door to door knocking to give themselves time to think. Either way, they were camped outside of Jerusalem when the star incident happened. First, look what excited them about the star. It was the first time they'd seen it since they saw it in the east, possibly two years earlier. This was a sign or omen to get worked up about. For this to work, however, they had to be sleeping outdoors instead of a kingly tent. In December, it snows in Israel. If you insist on a divine beam of light from a literal star, everybody and Herod's mother would have seen it. Why would God light up the sky with a beam of light when everybody needed secrecy? Remember, it is past day 40, so Jesus is almost certainly not in Bethlehem still. This star beam, unless properly focused like a magnifying glass on an ant, ooh, um, would also not identify a specific house. If it is a cosmic occurrence, yay, but now what? It would not help them identify any of the houses in Bethlehem, would it? For various reasons, I have to utterly reject star as any cosmic occurrence and instead accept it as a malik. In just the context of the passage, the malik went and then stood so they knew specifically in which house to find Jesus. How does a star stand? Hmm. An angel, however, can stand. It can lead. It can show up in a tent 
reveal itself and help the wise men sneak away from both their tents and the outskirts of Bethlehem in the dead of the night, and then could lead them to a specific house in a specific town, Bethany. An angel could do this. A star could not. So let's discuss some problems with Astrostar. First of all, they saw it one time while in the east. Thus, no tracking. Thus, no guidance. Thus, only announcing. Other problems for Astrostar. It appears outside of Jerusalem to guide them to a house. Thus, not big bright enough to attract Herod. Thus, small enough to pinpoint. Uh, yet another issue for uh, Astrostar, it moved and stood. Thus, it seems more than just light. Now, while I've dismissed the idea of Astrostar, there are some precedents for star equaling an angel or Malik. Take a look at Job 38. In Job 38, you read how the morning stars sang, and then by the end of that sentence, you hear them referred to as the sons of God. In Jude chapter 13, you hear the term wandering stars synonymous with a point being made about fallen angels. Stars equals angels. In Revelation chapter 1, the seven stars are later equated with the seven archangels. Not to be outdone, Revelation 22 references the bright morning star as a reference for Jesus. Now, the morning star in itself has a lot of complicated background, uh, but take a look at Revelation 2, chapter 28, where the morning star seems to be a title previously, previously, note you, held by Lucifer and or Satan. Revelation 12 talks about the stars of heaven in the context of them being angels. Now, certainly, I could be wrong, but I just don't get what's going on if it was a beam of light. In a bit, Herod finds out that he was tricked when the wise men bolt. If they went to Bethlehem, then it was a successful trick by Herod? Ah, if they didn't go to Bethlehem, Herod would know he was bamboozled, right? Why did he kill all the babies? Because the wise men vanished before going into Bethlehem. So don't let your wise men go to Bethlehem, and these, this problem goes away. Remember, God does not want Herod to find baby Jesus. 
why would the angel or star uh, be complicit in giving up this vital bit of information? I believe God sends a star angel to redirect the wise men to another house in another town. It should be a house that's hard to find. It should be a house from which it's easy to get back to the east. It should be a house that would allow safe passage to Egypt. It should also be reasonably close to Bethlehem, but not be Jerusalem, since they had just departed Jerusalem. So why have I been building a case for Bethany in all these Bible studies? Bethany fits most of those needs. Again, I'm not positive where Zacharias would live. Lazarus speculation only. But I have strong feelings where he would not live. How would he know if they bolted unless they didn't go to Bethlehem? Matthew chapter 2 verse 11 reads, And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Another way. See, if this was Bethlehem, this is very problematic. But Bethany is on the eastern slope of the hill country of Judea. From Bethany, it is a straight shot into the deserts. From Bethany, it is a straight shot south along the good side of the Dead Sea. Departing from Bethlehem, or Jerusalem, or even worse, Nazareth, causes all sorts of schematic problems for the two sets of travelers. Did the wise men leave without their retinue of travelers, leaving the Jewish spies bewildered? Did the caravan break up in a hundred parts, like bugs scurrying away from the light? When they didn't go to Bethlehem, Herod and his spies knew they'd been bamboozled. Before we deal with the treasures and the identity of the wise men, just remember that when Herod's spies wake up the next morning and the wise men are gone, he knows they tricked him. So it's time to talk about the treasure. Every time a prophet opened his mouth, Satan chuckled. <laughs> remember the first Christ prophecy? All it said was the seed of Eve, leaving Satan with a burning desire to wipe out humanity. <laughs> um, then it got very specific, very specific. Each of these specific prophecies heaped more detail upon the Christ promise and also made it harder to fulfill. If you go back to episode two, any of these prophecies left unfulfilled 
would have been a win for Satan. God had to bat 1,000 for the Christ to happen. One of the strangest and coolest prophecies is an ancient tale about the treasures the wise men carried with them. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Get this. The treasures are re-gifted. Instead of stopping by the uh, Toys for Tots store in Damascus, the wise men were caretakers of ancient gifts meant to be handed over to the Christ when he takes bodily form. Now, any modern asterisk maker can point out the first century details about the treasures. Gold is, well, um, gold. (laughs) Um, It could have come from anywhere. The incense and myrrh, however, would have come from specific places, if you keep the story simple. Frankincense more likely would have come from either the Arabian Peninsula or from Somalia. It was so popular that the infamous Silk Road connected to Africa to swap goods from ancient China. Rome helped this process by building good roads and bringing stability to the Middle East. There were now major highways for the Silk Road merchants. Myrrh also came from a specific source, Ethiopia. Frankincense and myrrh had great value. Uses included perfumes, medicinal, eyeshadow, embalming, wine mix, and even a cure for snakebite. So while Mary and Joseph might have appreciated a baby blanket or diapers, these gifts were also nice. Unless... There are some Old Testament prophecies that seem to predict the coming of the wise men, which is why I didn't dismiss this ancient story. It fits, despite the quality of its source. The spurious work I'm referencing is the conflict of Adam and Eve with Satan, which is often referred to as a lost book of the Bible by the History Channel types. It is not credible. The Egyptian-slash-Arabic author is unknown. It is a written account of a flawed oral tradition. While none of it can be treated as gospel, it introduces an idea that is not just curious, but kind of awesome. Here's a recap of what Adam and Eve 1, Book 30 says. Right after the fall and expulsion from the garden, Satan was mad. In fact, the text claims that Satan tried to kill Adam and Eve which God would simply not allow. Adam and Eve were taken by two angels, which the text lists as Suriel and Salathiel, to the holy mountain. See Ezekiel 28 if you want to see more about that. 
where they could be safe from future attacks. On the holy mountain, there was a cave where the depressed couple could stay. For three days, Adam and Eve stayed in this dark cave, mourning their fallen state. It was a tough transition from God's grace and the garden. To cheer them up, according to the text, God sent his angels on three specific tasks. He sent Michael, yes, that Michael, <laughs> to get some golden rods. Gabriel, yes, that Gabriel, to get some incense from the garden. And Raphael brought myrrh that had been dipped and purified in a holy spring. After three days in the ground, I mean cave, Adam and Eve were presented with their presence. See, even though this is a spurious book, it tells a nice story, doesn't it? Now, this next section of the text made my jaw drop. So I'll give you the translated lines word for word. Book 31 reads, For I shall come and save thee, and kings shall bring me, when in the flesh, gold, incense, and myrrh. Gold as a token of my kingdom, incense as a token of my divinity, and myrrh as a token of my suffering and my death. Regifting indeed. For 900 years, Adam and Eve kept these treasures, according to the text, in the cave, letting it remind them of the garden, while the gold actually is described as lighting the cave, big nightlight. Um, when Adam is on his deathbed, he gathers up his family and gives them some instructions. First, they are to preserve his body because, second, a flood is coming in a few centuries. Then, take his body with them on the ark. What's an ark, Adam? Rebury his body, quote, in the middle of the earth, unquote. And then finally, quote, for the place where my body shall be laid is the middle of the earth. God shall come from thence and shall save our kindred. Bet you didn't picture a coffin along with the giraffes sticking their heads out of the window of the ark, did you? We'll get back to this in episode 12. Let's focus on the treasure. The text of Adam and Eve, book 2, um, chapter 8, verse 17 reads, Preserve this gold, this incense, and this myrrh that God has given us for a sign. For in the days that are coming, a flood will overwhelm the whole creation. But those who shall go into the ark shall take with them the gold, incense, and myrrh, with my body in the midst of the earth. And here is the really strange ending to this spurious text. Then, after a long time, the city in which the gold, incense, and myrrh are found with my body shall be plundered. But when it is spoiled, the gold, incense, and myrrh shall be taken care of with the spoil that is kept, and naught of them shall perish until the word of God made man shall come, when kings shall take them and shall offer to him. 
Hmm. That's a big hmm. <laughs> okay. According to this 6th century AD legend, the wise men were prophesied 4,000 years before they showed up. If true, this is an amazing story that almost came to a tragic end at the hands of Herod. It is a good thing that an angel helped them both at the beginning and the end of the story. I know this tale is a bit far-fetched and too good to be true, but let's just entertain the idea for a bit. Let's walk this through. So the flood comes. Noah, Shem, Japheth, Ham, and their wives get on the ark with the animals, Adam's body, and the three treasures. The gold, coincidentally, would light the ark, and the incense would make it smell like the Garden of Eden. Raven, dove, unload. It is at this point that the tale requires some specific action to rebury Adam. All of this would be taking place in the Tower of Babel era. According to the story, Shem, Japheth, and Ham would have found a nice place for Adam and the treasures, only to have them stolen. Knowing this ahead of time would have meant two probable reactions. First, you shrug and let God's grace guide the treasures into the hands of the wise men 2,000 years later. Or, you keep some of the treasure. If each brother took a bit and also left the rest at Adam's tomb, then it would be really hard for Satan to stop this prophecy from coming true. Of course, this is just a silly theory, right? None of this is biblically supported. The wise men were from Persia, and the treasures were locally bought and meaningless. Right? Right? In the next section, let's take a look at some Old Testament support. We'll begin with Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, I've always giggled at pastors who haven't been able to say that, Ephrathah. Ephrata. <laughs> I should stop and re-record this, but I'm going to keep it real. Though thou be little amongst the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been told from old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. Okay, so Micah called it. Bethlehem? Check. Birth? Check. Remnant? Hmm. What does that mean? The most obvious answer would be the lost northern tribes. I like this because it would allow the wise men to be Hebrew instead of just 
Jewish, the tribe of Judah, which is why they even knew about the Christ promise. If we expand this even further, it could also reference all the way back to the Ark, when Japheth went toward Europe, Ham went toward Africa, and Shem went east and Middle East. If all three had the treasures at the Ark, then perhaps this return of the remnant is a reunification of both Jew and Gentile. Psalm 72 also has some insight. Let's start with verse 9. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him. Most of Psalm 72 talks about a Messiah, Christ, or redemptive king. But these two verses offer up some awesome details. First, notice the term wilderness, which could mean both literal desert or just a far off distant land. How distant? Well, Tarshish is Spain, and they had a name for a country on the far side of the Mediterranean Sea. How far is this wilderness then? Wait, Spain? <laughs> my, my wise man has been traveling for a while if he came from Spain. This guy would be the Japheth wise man, since Genesis 10 connects him to the European countries. Ham's descendants were African, which is why Sheba and Seba were mentioned. Remember, Psalm 72 was written long before Rome, the Silk Road, and even the dispersing of the northern tribes. This prophecy also seems to be a gathering of the sons of Noah instead of the sons of Jacob. Here is another. Psalm 68 verse 29 reads, Because of thy temple at Jerusalem shall kings bring presents unto thee. Rebuke the company of spearmen, the multitude of bulls with the calves of the people, till every one submit himself with pieces of silver. Scatter thou the people that delight in war. Princes shall come out of Egypt. Ethiopia shall soon stretch out her hands unto God. Sing unto God, ye kingdoms of the earth. O sing praises unto the Lord. Selah. Whether three kings or thirty, the gathering of the wise men must have been quite impressive, especially when you look at how Isaiah describes it. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1 reads, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come by thy, to thy light, and the kings to the brightness of thy rising. 
Lift up thine eyes about, around about, and see, all they gather themselves together. They come to thee. Thy sons shall come from afar. Thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side. Then thou shalt see, and flow together, and thine heart shall fear, and be enlarged, because of the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. The multitude of camels shall cover thee, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. All they from Sheba shall come. They shall bring golden incense, and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together unto thee. The rams of Nebioth shall minister unto thee. They shall come up with acceptance on mine altar, and will glorify the house of my glory. Who are these that fly as a cloud and as doves to their windows? Surely the isles shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish first to bring thy sons from far, their silver and their gold with them, unto the name of the Lord thy God, and unto the Holy One of Israel, because he hath glorified thee. Okay, so now who's laughing at the Adam and Eve theory? We have all three sons of Noah. We have all three treasures. We have the Christ. We have camels. The passage from Isaiah was written hundreds of years prior to the wise men. Unless it is an end times prophecy, what else is it talking about other than the wise men? If this is the wise men prophecy, then look at all the wonderful details it describes and amplifies. The caravan that parks outside of Jerusalem is indeed quite massive. It is also an international coalition, which is why... In my mind, Jerusalem is described as being frightened and alarmed. This is also why it took a bit for them to bop on down to Bethlehem. A large coalition would also make it easy for the wise men to vanish from the midst of their retinue. However, if you match up all of these details with what is described in the nativity story, then this coalition gathered together before marching for Jerusalem. Where did they gather? A king from Tarshish travels from the west. A king from Sheba travels from the south. Once they gathered, is that where the angel appeared to them in the east? Did they glean the information to determine to go to Jerusalem? Or did the angel star tell them? Well, I have more questions than answers. The last question I would like to ask and hopefully answer is, so who were these guys? So now that you understand why I think all three sons of Noah were represented, the artistic renditions of the three kings as African, Asian, and Caucasian is not a modern invention, but a very old interpretation dating back to the BC era. Surprisingly, there is a lot of information about the identities of the wise men, but there is absolutely no consistency or common ground. The most commonly accepted identities comes from an Alexandrian document dated 500 AD, 
which describes the three kings as Melchior, a Persian, Caspar, an Indian, and Balthazar, an Arabian. Syrian Christians have a tradition of the three kings as being, oh boy, Larvandad, Gushnasaf, and Hormistas. Huh? Okay, um, Ethiopian Christians, remember the psalm about Ethiopia, name the kings as Hor, Karzudan, and Basanatur. Armenia, which is where Mount Ararat, or the Ark, uh, is or was located, um, lists Kegfa, oh boy, Bada Kaharida, and Bada Dilma as the three kings. If Isaiah 60 is accurate, it could be that all of these traditions are correct, and there were simply a dozen or more kings in the coalition. There is an endearing tale about Jesus and an eastern king by the name of Gandafares. According to the legend I read, this king sent an envoy to Jesus during the days of his ministry. Not recorded in the Gospels, though. This tale says that Jesus politely told the envoy that he had little time to do his work, but later he would send a disciple to bring the gospel to the king. Sure enough, after the crucifixion, this task, purportedly, fell to Thomas, who went way out of his way to Kandahar. Now, later, Thomas died in India. Ambition. What intrigues me is what a king, as far as Afghanistan, is doing sending letters to Jesus. How did he even know of a Messiah unless we three kings of Orient are? Ah, there is another tale from ancient Taxila, which is modern-day Pakistan, that the wise men passed by while taking the Silk Road that led to China. How far east is east? Well, let's look at a disjointed piece of history that does not fit anything except the Wiseman theory. In 1243 AD, a Christian named Prester John was sent to meet the Kublai Khan in China. He reported that the whole land of Chatta were believers that traced their heritage back through a Mongol line that claimed to be descended from the original Magi. These people, the Naamans they were called, hailed from Central Asia. If a wise man Magi king did come face to face with baby Jesus, he would not be able to go back to the gods of his fathers, but would preach and teach a limited gospel to all those around him. After 1,200 years, it appears a bit of it remained for Prester John to discover. Marco Polo also mentions that he saw the tombs of a wise man magi king during his visit in Saba, Iran. St. Helena used the might of her son's Roman Empire to track down the remains of the wise men and gathered them 
at a shrine in Constantinople, while Cologne, Germany, believes it has the remains of the three kings. Let's finish at the house in Bethany. Now, to fulfill the prophecy, Herod had to be tricked. This coalition of kings knew they were being watched. And whether the star angel led them away, or they snuck out and then saw the star angel, they most likely could not bring their whole posse with them. Luke seems to indicate that on the same night they gave the treasures, they also learned they needed to vanish by morning. Herod's spies, now sitting on the outskirts of Bethlehem, must have been quite surprised when this international coalition scattered without going to Bethlehem or returning to Jerusalem. Let's stay in Bethany for a bit. Let's imagine the wise men, the kings, presenting their treasures to baby Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Is Elizabeth, Zachariah, and baby John in your imagination? Are they there? Are there other people from Bethany also there? More likely than not, the visiting kings could not speak with the inhabitants of the house. How did they relay the harrowing journey the treasures had just taken? The hostess would have fed them and given them a place to sleep, but by the next morning, they were gone. These three kings or 30 magi or 300 wise men would all go back to their countries, nourished and ready to receive the full gospel by the end of the next generation. Wherever they went, they or their children would have been ready converts to Christianity. Did Joseph have his dream on the same night? While it is possible that time went by, Herod would have been looking for answers. Letting Joseph linger for a few more days seems unlikely. I think both warnings happened that night. So by morning, in Bethany, <laughs> everyone is scattering while spies are running back to Jerusalem to tell Herod about what was happening, nothing, in Bethlehem. What happens to the treasure? There are all sorts of theories about the treasures. One story tells a tale that the two thieves on cavalry stole the gold years early. Another tale says that little Judas absconded it. Yeesh. The most popular tale is that Mary and Joseph used it to finance their trip to Egypt. However, I'd like to throw out another theory. Mary Magdalene. Now, I'm not going to argue the difference between Mary Magdalene and Mary of Bethany right here. I'll save that for my Imagining Easter book. If the two Marys are one and the same, then Mary Magdalene was a prostitute who was born in Bethany and found possessed by seven demons near Magdala, uh, Lake Galilee. If the same person, then it is no wonder Martha is so judgmental of her tarnished sister. In John chapter 12, we read the end of a 4,000-year-old story. Do a little digging, and you will learn that the value of the alabaster box was the equivalent to a full year's worth of wages. 
What prostitute would hold on to such a thing? Unless it was as precious as her soul. My speculation is that in the town of Bethany, in the year 4 BC, there was a family near Zacharias and Elizabeth. This family had three children, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who most likely was not born yet or was older than two. This family knew the secret of the wise men, baby John, and baby Jesus. They could be trusted. Years later, Mary and Joseph returned to this family for hospitality during the three annual festivals, which is why Jesus and Lazarus became close friends. Mary? She must have been a bit older, and although I have no clue how she strayed so far, Jesus went out and found her at Magdala and brought her back to the light. As the eldest daughter of neighbor Bob, she had access to the spikenard and incense. Mary became the last magi. Her task? First, she anointed the paschal lamb prior to it being brought into the house with oil, so valuable Satan, or Jesus, could not believe it still existed. While it is not clear if this spikenard was one of the holy treasures, a short time later, Mary is given a final task, preparing Jesus' body for the grave. What did she do? She wrapped him in a hundred pounds of incense. Why? I believe it was the last of the cave treasures incense, created with a promise that it would be used as a token of my suffering and death. Well, that's what's running through my mind on a Christmas Eve service. Uh, as always, you've been listening to Jason Lee Willis's Examining Christmas. Join me again for our final episode, Out of Africa. Until we meet again. <laughs>